The CFOs that get it, get it. The CFOs that don't, don't. Let's talk about the CFO, the Chief Financial Officer. There are two kinds of CFOs. One who's struggling to keep up, spreadsheets everywhere, manual processes. It takes weeks to close the books. The other kind is on top of their game. Automated reports, inventory, commerce, and HR flow into the financial model seamlessly. NetSuite is everything you need to grow all in one place. That's why NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system used by over 28,000 growing businesses. 93% of businesses increased their visibility and control after upgrading to NetSuite. Head to netsuite.com slash c-suite for a special one-of-a-kind financing offer. That's netsuite.com slash c-suite. netsuite.com slash c-suite. This is Profit from the Inside with Joel Block. Insights to give your business the inside track. And now, here's your host, Joel Block. If you ever wonder how some people get so far so fast, sometimes you have to wonder, is it what they do? Is it what they think? Is it how they act? Is it their background, who they know? Or sometimes there's a little surprise. And to answer that, Dr. Susan Johnson Cook. Dr. Cook, thank you very much for joining us. How are you today? Fine, thank you. So wonderful to be with you, Joel. Again. Oh, listen, it was, uh, it was a pleasure to get a chance to visit with you a couple of months ago and I just found your background uh, so extraordinary. I found what you've accomplished to be so extraordinary. First of all, you were appointed by the president of the United States, then President Barack Obama, uh, to be an ambassador for the United States of America. That that by itself is an amazing thing. Tell us about that, how that happened, and we'll kind of get into some of the business stuff in a little bit, but tell us a little bit about that. Thank you. Well, I was the third U.S. ambassador at large for international religious freedom. It was a bill signed as the IRFA Act, International Religious Freedom Act, in 20 years ago, this year, actually. And it was signed by when President Clinton was president and Madeleine Albright was Secretary of State to advocate for religious freedom all over the world because so many are persecuted, but to be the chief advisor to the Secretary of State and the president on those issues of religious freedom. So I was appointed under President Obama, nominated by Secretary Clinton, and I had all 199 countries in my portfolio. It's about relationships. I had had a relationship working for President Clinton in 93, 94, about 20 years before that. And I stayed in touch with him. I worked hard in the position I had with him. He created a couple of other new positions when I, I was the domestic policy analyst. I went in as a White House fellow in 93, 94, which is a one-year appointment amazing. But if you're accepted, it's a competitive program. You work for either the president, the vice president, or cabinet secretary. I ended up working in the White House for President Clinton. I'm a faith advisor. I was a faith leader in New York City for 30 years. And so President Clinton was really into the faith community. So he kept me on. We created really what was the first faith-based initiatives. We didn't have that name for it, but he wanted government to be more user-friendly to the faith community. So he needed someone who new government and someone who needed a faith community. So here's another job that lands after my first year. So I think it's about relationships. And I stayed in touch with him throughout his White House years. Post White House years, he moved to New York where I was in Harlem. 
post White House years with then not yet Senator Clinton. She was First Lady Clinton. She comes to New York. I worked with her and her Senate campaign. Then she ran for president, worked with her for a presidential campaign. And I think all of life is about the relationships, about nurturing them, about really being genuine and authentic about the relationships we have. But when something's placed in our hands, doing a really great job at it so that no one has to question whether your being the choice was the right one or not. And that's what happened all the way through. That is such an important point that you make, right? Really, you said a lot of different things, but, sure. you know, partly it's who you know and you develop. Yeah those relationships over a long time, but you also have to be good because you could know a lot of people and be really not too good and things aren't going to go your way. And that that's a really important takeaway. And, you know, we talk about the inside track and people think about relationships being the inside track, but it's more than just who, you know, no, it's about performing and delivering when the door opens. Bishop Jakes, who I toured with, says, you know, God gives talent, but man or woman has to give opportunity. And so when you have the opportunity, what are you going to do when the ball is thrown to you? You know, you look like you played some sports. I was a power forward. And so you say, give me the ball, give me the ball, give me the ball. Finally, someone tosses it to you. Well, if you don't know how to dribble, if you don't know how to shoot, you're going to be benched. And it's the same thing in life. You know, if you don't know how to dribble and shoot, then they're going to find another one who does. And so it's about relationships. It's about seeking and knowing when an opportunity comes and then doing a real good job. You know, you're in finance and the word is ROI, return on your investment. And we don't talk a lot about return or the investment. So it's an investment of time. It's a lot of sacrifice, working for the government or working for yourself. You're leaving your family. You're leaving loved ones because you want to do a good job. Well, they want to, you want to see a return on that. And I think that's what we really looked for. Investing, putting some time in, but then delivering, seeing some return on that investment. Yeah, that's pretty great. So really, the way that you monetize all those relationships is through your performance. And by the way, I did not play sports. I am a sports fan. And what I love most about sports, I love the metaphor of sports, which you just referred to. Yes. Sports is, is an easy way for all of us to understand Listen, if I throw you the ball and you drop it, then we're going to find somebody else to catch the ball. I mean, that's a great metaphor, you know, and that's just easy. You know, I mean, I was a pre-title nine woman. I've always been five, ten, literally from sixth grade. I'm still that height. So I needed to play something. And I used to play in New York City, you know, where they play the best ball in the world. We didn't have many nets, but we had hoops. And the bottom line was when they threw you that ball, you better make a dribble layup. You better make a three-pointer or something, but you got to take a shot. And so that's where I learned my game, on the streets of New York. Well, listen, the inside track's about taking a shot. If you don't take your shot, then forget it. You'll never make anything happen, right? Very much so. And you may miss a couple. I mean, a lot of people don't talk about failure and missing some shots. I don't call it regrets, but I know there's some things that I wish I would have done differently or things that I had to do over again until I got it right. My son is just finishing med school. He just found out this week that he's going to have his residency, a major investment of time, sacrifice. He's 26. He's been in school for 24 of his 26 years. But he called me and the first thing he says is, Ma, I appreciate what you've invested in me, what you've placed in me. And I think that's what we really live for. Like, if we're going to invest, we want to make sure that there's some appreciation and that there's some return. But when I was a White House fellow, that same thing going back to 93, 94 for Clinton, no one tells you that I went twice before. I went under Reagan and under George H.W. Bush, Bush's administration. 
I didn't know everything. I went in the room wrong a couple of times in terms of how I dressed and the whole thing for the reception. And I knew it when I walked in, but it was like kind of too late. The commissioners were there. <laughs> I went in artsy, you know, with my little scarf and my little whatever. And everybody in the room was in red, white, and blue pearls, <laughs> you know, the little pumps. And so sometimes we have to fail our way to success. But it's about being not just brilliant, but being resilient. Let me ask you, let's change tracks here. Uh, when you are ambassador and you're traveling to many different countries, I imagine, uh, you know, promoting the agenda of the United States. You know, one of the things that I notice is that as Western people, we promote our agenda quite forcefully. And we kind of want everybody in the world to have our agenda. Now, I guess other countries would like us to have their agenda, too, by the way, which we don't like when people do that to us. But do you think that we promote our agenda a little hard, like the whole concept of religious freedom? You know, other countries do things different than us. I don't have the answer. I'm asking you because you went to many places and you saw many places. You know, do you think that we overdo it? Do you think we're not open minded enough when it happens to us? What was your experience? I would say we promote the agenda strongly. I think that we are <laughs> we are strong and we are a nation to be reckoned with. I had 199 countries. I went to 28 of them. But the flip side is that there's some countries that are really persecuting people just because of what they believe or their desire to want to believe something else and really cannot do it. So you have to kind of weigh it in the balance. I think if America didn't speak up in many instances, we'd have a lot more persecuted and a lot more killed. Um, and that's the reality. So you have to really balance it. All the countries signed on to what was called the UN Declaration of Human Rights. And so when a person's human rights aren't honored, you have to have someone. You can call us a bully if you want, but you have to have someone who's kind of watching out for the people who don't have a voice. And in many places, not only were we amplifying the voices of those who couldn't, but we were really the voice for those who couldn't speak up. So I think, you know, America, and you have to be clear on what your agenda is. I signed on for the whole thing. You know, the Senate confirmation hearings, which weren't fun. I had to go through two of them. I signed on for all of the scrutiny and the vetting that has to happen before you even get the call to say, will you be a nominee? But once you are nominated and once you are sworn in, you sign on for the whole deal. My agenda was clear. I was representing the president of the United States and the secretary of state. It wasn't about what I believe or thought or if I didn't like it, then you don't go into it. So I was very honored to be a U.S. ambassador for the United States of America. Wouldn't have traded it for anything in the world. My diplomatic status I can carry with me throughout life. So it was worth the four years of time that I spent in both being nominated and in serving in the role. You know, the main thing I take away from what you just said is clarity. To me, clarity, clarity is everything. And frequently it's missing in business. I mean, I, I really focus on clarity because little companies, medium-sized companies, and even large companies, if they lose their way, if they become unclear, were you clear all along or did the bullseye that you were aiming at change from time to time or was it always a stationary dot on the wall that that you could aim at? No, I was very clear. They made sure you're clear before you go to your hearings. And when you come out of your hearings, I mean, there are binders of information. There are what they call murder boards to make sure that you're understanding the material, whether you have to go up on Capitol Hill and testify, whether you have to go overseas, because you need to be very, very clear. I had clarity with no second thoughts whatsoever. 
And I was willing to put that time in. And that's what we want in everything in life. You want to be clear on what your role is. I was a pastor before I came into the diplomatic role. I was a pastor for 30 years, a Baptist pastor in New York City, inner city New York. And that was its role. They were not hiring me to be a Baptist pastor in government. They were hiring me to be the U.S. ambassador at large. So I wasn't representing just my denomination. I was not representing the Christian faith. I was very clear on what they were asking me to do. And that's what you have to know. What it is you're doing, who it is you're supposed to respond to, who it is you're accountable to. And if you don't have those clarities, then you should not take a position. So let's transition that clarity, that job, that information back to business, because most of our audience are business executives. Yes. And, you know, are the salespeople that work in your environment, are the executives that work in your environment, are they crystal clear? Do they have the loyalties that they need to have? Do they put their personal agenda aside so that they can promote the the bigger picture that's given to them as part of their assignment? I mean, you know, do you have any experience with transitioning or, or translating what you just described into a business environment? Well, very much. I mean, I came from a business family. Both my parents were business owners. I now own a small business, a, a professional speakers bureau. It's the only global professional speakers bureau owned by a black woman. So I've been in business all my life and I do now corporate training. I just finished Howard University's executive business program. So I'm always trying to sharpen my tools and skills because I think that's important. One of the things, as you know, before we go in and do any corporate training is that we sit down with either HR or with any of the executives to understand what the culture is. And then where is their void? What is not happening well? And that's where we come in and say, okay, this is what we see. This is what can help to make it better. So it's about understanding the culture. That big C word is something that we all have to understand. Whether I'm going to Harvard or whether I'm going to the White House, every environment has its culture. And you have to understand it before you can go in and help them with any transitions, with any problem solving. You really need to understand the culture. So a lot of time is spent really in advance of the business making progress. But what you want to do is stop the bleeding. You want to stop the hemorrhaging. If they've called you or I to come in, that means something's been going on for a while that's not matching. The numbers aren't right. The the people are not getting along. The culture is tense or people are getting sick in that culture. Well, we have to kind of figure out what are the triggers to all those problems. And so, yeah, I, I do have experience in that. And I think it's really important to sit down and take your time before you go in and say, here, I'm the problem solver. No, we're going to you're going to solve the problem. I'm going to help guide you in terms of what that problem is. So, you know, even when you uh, go and you analyze culture, you talk about these kinds of issues, you got to get them clear about the nature of their problem. I mean, clarity comes up again and again. So they have to understand their problem. They have to understand why they have the problem, what it's going to take to solve the problem. And my sense is that the more people in the organization that get clear about what needs to happen, the better. Somehow, I just find when you stay above the fray and above Mm -hmm. all the kind of riffraff and and that happens uh, down below, that you can get a better perspective. And we have to try to help people to do that. 
Yeah, I think so, too. I mean, one of the really good things that's happened, as you know, in business is the employee resource groups or ERGs that have formed, because then it allows people what we call like safe space to share what their issues are, whether it's a women's employee resource group or an African-American or Latino, because then when we go in as corporate executive trainers, we can also meet with those groups individually and sometimes be their voice to management, to the executive team that may not ever understand that there was something going on, that there was a problem. So I think that that's a really good move in terms of the 21st century. You didn't always have a place to go. You would go to human resources, and then people didn't always feel comfortable there. But in your employee resource group, there's kind of a team within the team that allows you to at least have your voice heard. So you're running a speaker bureau, which basically is a, a brokerage of speakers. So corporations will call you and say, listen, we need a speaker on a certain topic, and then you pick people that you know are probably appropriate for that. Um, What's the inside track to succeeding in that business? Is there a a couple of tricks that you have up your sleeve that make you better at that than some other people? Well, the inside track is that you're not born a speaker. You're not born a leader overnight. So you have to come with experiences and you have to come with a lot of practice. I've given over 3,000 speeches and probably about one less than you. Um, But it's it's about (laughs) always honing your craft. It's about trying some new things. It's about being in front of audiences that you haven't been in front of before. But the bottom line, the inside track is experience. The second is my, my mantra is strategize, monetize, globalize. So you have to have a strategy for where you want to go. It should, you should not be in the same place now that you were years ago. You should monetize it. You should not be doing speeches for free if you've been speaking 10 years or more. And globalize. This is the 21st century. There are 199 functioning countries on this earth. A couple were kind of not their failed states. But you should be able to go to another country. So, for example, I'm leading a delegation of women to Bali this summer. So it's a women's girl trip, a women's international trip to expose and expand our horizons. But while we're there, we're going to also meet with business leaders. And there are a couple of conventions and conferences going on. Well, I've already done my due diligence, and I'm going to connect with those leaders and perhaps give a speech there. So you have to constantly be growing. Don't ever think that you've arrived. Again, that C word, that culture word, in terms of understanding who's your audience, who you're speaking to, what works, what does not work. Humor here may not be humor in Indonesia. You know, humor here may not be humor with you. So really understanding your audience very clearly. And the last thing I would say is continuing to have relationships. Ultimately, that's how people book us. They've heard me. They've heard one of my speakers. They call me like, so-and-so did well, you did well, so we want you to come back again or get us someone. So relationships is the bottom line for the inside tracks. Don't burn the bridges, as our parents used to say. Keep them rolling. Keep that water flowing so you can go back again. No, listen, fantastic advice. Do you think that in the last 20 years, as you know, brokerages of all kinds have kind of gone away, the Internet is disintermediating different kinds of things, do you think that the a bureau business, the speaker bureau business still has a place or do you think it's going to be completely obliterated? No, I think it definitely has a place. Number one, people can't negotiate for themselves. It puts them in a really rough place to say, I really command $10,000. You're offering two. Your speaker's bureau, your agent, my thing is to kick butt 
position. I am the negotiator. I'm the one, not the imitator. This is what we do, and this is what this person's value. And I think you have to have value, and you have to understand your value, that everything is, that second word is about monetizing. So I don't think speakers' bureaus will ever become obsolete. In fact, they're expanding because they're different nations that may not want you to do a keynote. We specialize in keynotes, but they want a country expert, someone to help them. For example, when I was in Nigeria, as a diplomat, the Nigerian law enforcement turns over every two years. Well, I work for the NYPD. So there's a police commissioner or two that I may know that can help their government and their police department in terms of stabilizing and effectiveness. So I don't think we'll ever become obsolete. We're, we're connectors, we're communicators, and we're cross-cultural translators so that if you're going to Nigeria, if you're going to Ghana, there's a piece in between that you need a segue, someone to help you understand where you're going because your speech again that you give in California is not the speech you give in Lagos, Nigeria. No matter who's in that audience, you better understand who you're speaking to. So I think we're only growing. And that's why my Speakers Academy, which I'm starting to do online, people want to learn how to make powerful and profitable presentations. That's why my Speakers Academy is going. So I'll just give a shameless commercial, charismaspeakers.com. If you're interested, that's where I am. Um, But it's growing by leaps and bounds. It's only getting bigger and better. You know, the human beings aren't going to become obsolete, but because of technologies and other things, we have to adapt. We have to change. And that's kind of what you're referring to. Some people need an agent. Some agents negotiate better for them. I think all the things that you're saying are accurate. Uh, but a lot of the things that bureaus have promoted in the past are brokers of all kinds, real estate brokers, car brokers, all kinds of stock brokers. Uh, they've kind of traded on secret information. Well, the information isn't so secret anymore. So they got to seem like they got up their game. And they got to do something different. What you're talking about is is another level of providing representation, uh, negotiation assistance, and some other kinds of services, which is really necessary and powerful. So, uh, and there's certain technologies that can never take the place of a human being. Now they have. I've gone to a couple of hotels. Now they have a place that will pour you a drink for you. You want a rum and coke? It will pour it for you. Exact amounts, the right amounts. I don't drink it, but I see it. But there's certain things that a machine can't do in terms of motivating as well as representation and negotiation, people need to have someone who brings motivation. And that's going to come from a human being. No tape talking to me over the loudspeaker is going to ever motivate me the way a human being making eye contact and I'm feeling your energy and you're feeling mine. Nothing will replace that. So I think we're going to only grow bigger, better, and stronger. That's awesome. So what's the future look like for you? Where are you going from here? So you got your speaker bureau, you got your academy, your junior speaker training. What's next for you? Any more well, government stuff? Very much in, in the diplomatic community. You, you, like I said at the beginning, you know, you're an ambassador for life. So there being in Washington, D.C., where I spend most of my time, you know, the diplomatic community is strong, the current ones and the former ones. And so there are always times that we're called in to help in terms of, you know, whatever they need diplomats to do at schools in terms of teaching, helping train another generation of diplomats. There are certain fellowships that now are opening so that more people will have access to the diplomatic world. So I'm going to continue in that vein, continue to build my business. My oldest son just got his residency. So we're going to celebrate a little bit and do some human things with our family. So I'm enjoying this slice of life. It's, it's kind of what we work for. 
And so now I think life balance and enjoyment is important as well as working. I work hard, but I'm going to play hard. Listen, you spend your time on the inside track and your information is going to help our listeners to profit from the inside. So thank you very much for being with us. And thank you for having me. And so I so appreciate you and continue to grow as you've been doing. You've been listening to Profit from the Inside with Joel Block. For more insights and to learn more, visit joelblock.com. How about a shout out and a giant thanks to my podcast producer, David Wolf, and his team at Podcast and Radio Networks. Profit from the Inside simply wouldn't be what it is without David and his team. For more information or to learn how you can launch and produce your own podcast, reach out to podcastandradio.com. Produced by Audavita Studios. Connect your voice to the world.